Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'll be speaking with Lauren Bierkes. Lauren is the award-winning author of six novels, a collection of short stories, a pop history about South African women, and New York, best, New York Times best-selling comics. Her work has been translated into 26 languages. Her novel, The Shining Girls, about a time-traveling serial killer and the survivor who turns the hunt around, is now a major Apple TV series with Elizabeth Moss, who listeners may know from The Handmaid's Tale and Mad Men. Lauren is a former feature journalist who covered electricity cable thieves, HIV-positive beauty pageants, metro cops, and homeless sex workers. She's worked in film and TV as the director of Glitter Boys and Ganglands, a documentary which won Best LGBTI Film at the Atlanta Black Film Festival, and as a showrunner and head writer on South Africa's first half-hour animated TV show, Pax Africa, which ran for 104 episodes on SABC. Her work has been hailed by the likes of Stephen King, Gillian Flynn, George R. R. Martin, and she has won several awards over the last years, including the Arthur C. Clarke Award, the University of Johannesburg Prize, the Strand Critics' Choice Award, the Kitschies Red Tentacle, the August Derlich Prize, RT Thriller of the Year, and Exclusive Books Booksellers' Choice Award, as well as the prestigious Mbokoto Award for Women in the Creative Arts from South Africa's Department of Arts and Culture. When asked where she gets her ideas from, Lauren responds, everywhere, conversations, observations, watching the cultural shifts and fracture points and weirdnesses in the world. The inside of my head is less a memory palace and more a hoarder house full of strange and useless things that sometimes, if I'm lucky, come together in interesting and surprising ways. One of these interesting and surprising ways is her latest novel, Afterland, the story of a mother and son on the run in a post-pandemic America. The pandemic, known as the manfall, means that 12-year-old Miles is one of the last boys alive and his mother, Cole, will protect him at all costs, especially from her own sister. This feminist high-stakes thriller is a blend of many genres and the perfect post-pandemic read. Lauren lives in London with her teenage daughter, two trouble cats and lots of plants. So today I'll be talking with Lauren about post-pandemic motherhood, feminism and literary success. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you so much, Jen. Let's start with the most recent amazing success of yours, the creation of the Shining Girl series with Elizabeth Moss, which is available on Apple TV. It's hard to decide which of your novels is my favorite, but the Shining Girls is definitely up there. What has it been to be like? Uh, what has it been to be a part of this um, creation of the series? And are you happy with how it's turned out? I think the way the series has turned out is just beyond anything I could have hoped for. A lot of TV adaptations go so very horribly wrong. Um, so it's just been a real thrill to see the way it come out the way it has with Elizabeth Moss, with Wagner Morrow, who is a better Dan in the series than the one I wrote. Although I think some parts of the series, the book did it better. Um, but, you know, it's the dialogue is so sharp and on point. Elizabeth Moss is just a phenomenon. Philippa Sue is in it. Uh, from Hamilton and that made my kids day she was like really trying to play she was really trying to play cool and she's like oh yeah my mom's book's gonna be a tv show and then I pointed out the latest casting and she was like Philippa Sue and she lost all her cool it was really sweet to see um but it's um it, it took nine years to get made which I think on average most adaptations take 10 years and of course like 98 percent of adaptations get optioned and never ever make it to screen so I'm slightly I'm one year under the curve and, the, and but the end result has been worth waiting for it's it's so beautiful and strange it really has a lot to say about trauma uh in different ways to the book but um it's it's a very exciting beautiful thing that's incredible I had no idea that it takes so long for a series to get made that's amazing um I suppose when you're used to writing novels and you know that they take several years that might not seem as long as it will sound to the ordinary listener <laughs> like investing in a book takes a good chunk of your life as well um so 
tell me a bit more about how how much you were involved in it and what your role was. Was it purely from a sort of spectator observer perspective or did you have any say in, in some of the decisions that they made? Sure. I just want to cover the difference between novel writing and movie making or TV series making. You know, as a novelist, you can lock yourself in your room and do all the work while crying. Um, but it's... Uh, it doesn't require hundreds of millions of dollars. You don't need to try and recruit movie stars or famous directors or, you know, cast and crew. It, it's, it costs you your own personal time, which of course is invaluable because our lives are short and valuable and precious. Uh, so, you know, it, it's a much more expensive process and that's why it, it often takes so long. If a book has been a massive success like um, – uh, gone Girl, you know, then they'll jump into production on that. But everything else, they really want to try and get it right. They need to raise the funding. They need to try and convince people. And the reason this happened now, finally, was because Elizabeth Moss came on board. And she loved the book and she loved the script written by the showrunner, Silke Louisa, who's wonderful. Um, and she actually took it to Apple. And I think as soon as you've got Elizabeth Moss backing you, you're pretty solid. Um but yeah, so I had long consultations with the showrunner initially. Um, so Silke and I had several long Zoom chats because, of course, it was all happening in the middle of the pandemic. And, of course, they were still, they started shooting in the middle of the pandemic. And uh, I couldn't get out to Chicago because of the vaccine policies and the fact that South Africa got the vaccine so late and because our epidemi epidemiologists are so very, very good and identifying new diseases, because we've lived with various epidemics for decades, um, you know, of course, we would identify a variation first and the rest of the world would turn around and point fingers and be like, it's from South Africa. It's the South African variant, which meant the U.S. Embassy wasn't even open for me to apply for a visa to fly to Chicago to visit set. Um, so that was pretty devastating. And then they canceled the premiere also because of COVID. Um so, but yeah, but it, it, I would get sent the scripts. I would see the screeners, um, you know, with, with still the very banky, janky VFX um, and some, you know, lines of dialogue would still need to be dubbed over. And um, so I got to see some of the process, but I wasn't there in the trenches and I'm quite sad about that. But I was also very happy to have someone else just take the project and run with it um, because I think there's a wonder and a joy to working with other minds, to seeing how somebody else unfolds your story, how somebody else unpacks things. And Silk Louisa did such an incredible job and I love what she saw in the material. And there's some creative decisions which are very different to the book. The, the, the time travel is very different. It's more kind of a multiverse theory than mine, which is a closed loop. And I think by necessity, they had to cut off a lot of the historical stories like the shining girls are supposed to cover you know several women killed between the 1930s and the 1990s and they're all exceptional in their time and i really got into those stories and then i killed them and i think it was hard enough to read i think it would be an unbearable to watch to get to know these really interesting women from a trans show dancer in the 1940s to um you know a lesbian kind of commie sympathizer architect in the 1950s and just watched them get killed one by one um, I think that would have been a lot so I, I appreciate that's a decision that they made to focus the story on Kirby the survivor story to age her up so Elizabeth Moss could play her but I also think an older woman maybe brings like some more nuance and weight to trauma um, which is not to say this is the trauma olympics um, but I think Elizabeth Moss's understanding of it and of course she's known for playing traumatized people and does it exceptionally well she's an incredible actress to watch in terms of just the, the force of a stare for example the really powerful um emotor and um, but speaking you were mentioned there about the difficulties of covid and travel and now finally travel has opened up and you're living in london after many years in cape town what motivated the move and how has it shaped the conversations observations cultural shifts and weirdnesses in the world as you say that give you your writing ideas um, South Africa has absolutely framed and shaped who I am as a writer. Um, you're growing up under apartheid, seeing the systemic violence and, uh, inequality and racism and, you know, a government that was willing to murder its people, uh, torture them, 
you know, suppress them, censor newspapers has been a really good grounding, it turns out, for the year 2022. Um, but I, that's also shaped the lens that I look at the world through. Uh, and I, I, I w- wouldn't change that for anything. And I love South Africa. It's the most incredible place. I think we have some of the best people in the world. Might be a little biased here. Um, but there are more opportunities for me in the rest of the world. You know, it's I've been to four book fairs in Europe already this year, um, which and, and book festivals and like really cool events and done a great conference in Brighton that would have been much harder from from Cape Town. Um, it would have been much more difficult to fly 11 hours and then like try to try to give a talk the next day. It also is much more expensive. So, you know, literary festival organizers and conference organizers aren't necessarily willing to invite you. Um and I do want to just touch on the inequality of that. You know, there's a huge movement for people to say, don't fly unless it's necessary. And I'm like, yeah, that's great for you to say if you live in the West, if you live in Europe or if you live in America, then by all means take the train or the ferry or drive your car. But for the rest of the world, you're telling us not to pursue our careers, to not engage, to not be able to get out there. Never mind the visa inequality where there was a massive uh, HIV AIDS conference recently and none of the African delegates got a visa. And it was just outrageous. Um, So we're literally being excluded from the conversation. So part of that was so that I could be part of the conversation, that I could be part of the culture much in a much more um, accessible and easy way that didn't take me out of my life for such a long time that I could just kind of pop across and do things. Um, And the other part, unfortunately, is the level of gender-based violence in South Africa, which has been absolutely devastating and obviously disproportionately affects black women and poor black women in particular but it's it's like breathing knives constantly and I think Karen Morn had a tweet about this recently the news journalist and she talked about how we are constantly living in trauma that this is just the way it is for all South African women and trans people and a lot of, uh, you know, queer people are obviously under threat as well. And of course, you know, men are getting killed at a very high rate as well. But it's just, it's, it becomes too much, you know, when I have to keep turning off the radio because seven women's bodies have been discovered. It's, with, especially with a daughter, I just didn't want that. I didn't want that for myself and I didn't want that for her. And it breaks my freaking heart. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to ask you was whether the move overseas has meant that your concerns for your daughter are different than they were here in South Africa. And I suppose the the daily trauma, the daily risk of gender-based violence, the having to turn off the radio is slightly different over there in the UK. Of course, there is gender-based violence and violence against women everywhere, but the levels are just a bit less extreme and um, omnipresent, I guess. Yeah, it's much less extreme. She's... um... You know, and she's taking the bus to school for herself by the first time in her life, um, which again, of course, is a very white South African, you know, upper middle class South African thing where you would drive your kid to school. Um, but yeah, yeah, she feels safe. You know, I asked her the other day, and of course, London's a big city, and of course, it's dangerous. We were taking the tube the other day, and a guy got in, hunched down, and started smoking a crack pipe in our carriage, and we had to move. So it's still a big city. It still has major problems. There have been muggings, you know, in the wetlands near where I live. And it's it's not perfect, but it is much safer. And you don't you don't have to you're not breathing knives all the time. You're not worried about getting raped and murdered all the time. Um, and, that, and that's a hell of a thing. It's a hell of a thing to have that weight lifted off you. Um, and of course, it could still happen. And it does happen but at a much lower rate. And I asked my daughter, you know, what is the best part of living in London? And she said, the safety. And I said, not the shows. And she was like, okay, the shows and then the safety. But I can see this weight that's come off her, how confident she is. She's literally tubing around the whole of London by herself um, at kind of 13, 14 years old. And, um, but she still has that South African superpower. So she'll be the one to say to her friend, she'll clock a dodgy guy across the street and she'll say, okay, everyone, we actually need to cross the street now. That guy's a bit dodgy. And they're oblivious. They're absolutely oblivious. And I 100% think that she's right. So she's never going to be able to turn off that kind of danger sense. Um, but it's certainly, I, I think that's going to stand her in good stead. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but I'm glad she doesn't have to live with it dialed up to the highest setting. 
at all times. Yeah, hypervigilance is exhausting and it takes you out of the joy of the moment and of the world. And so it is amazing yeah. that will be a different experience for her than, for example, what you had or what I have now or growing up, you know. It's really amazing to just be able to to have that to be able to use your spidey sense for good rather than to just remain perpetually exhausted. Um, so you speak about uh, weirdnesses as inspiring your writing. One of the most common weirdnesses in the world, in my view, is parenthood. And you're the mother <laughs> of your teenage daughter. So how has parenthood shaped your feminism, your writing, and how has feminism shaped your parenting and both, you know, vice versa? Um. So when I had written Zoo City, um, my daughter had just been born. I, I, I was, sorry, I was pregnant when Moxland came out. And um, I wrote Zoo City during the first three months. Well, she was three months old when I started writing Zoo City. Um, so when the book came out in 2010, a journalist asked me in South Africa, she said, oh, so now that you've had a child, how do you think this is going to change your writing? And I was so insulted. I was like, that is ridiculous. Like, do you ask men this question? Um, but it turns out that Zoo City actually has, you know, the woman has a, a sloth, which is a small creature that she cannot get rid of um, because the loss of it will kill her. Um, but she has to carry it around with her everywhere, um, which is also kind of her moral compass and her better self and her conscience. And when she does tries to do the right thing, it's because partly because of her sloth. Um, and then all my books since then have been about mother-daughter relationships in some way. They've touched on it. Uh, all mother-son relationships in Afterland. Um, so I guess the journalist was right. But I think I don't think that's because, you know, you know, there are people who put that on their Twitter bios where it's like wife, mother, and then their job title. And I've always felt like myself first, but being a mother is... Uh, absolutely essential to who I am as well. And of course it's changed who I am, but I'm still essentially myself and I'm never going to identify myself as those other things first. Um, but it, it, raising her feminist has been hilarious. And I actually thought about doing a comic strip, very badly drawn because I can't draw, save my life. Um, it, it would just be called Schooled, my daughter schooling me at all these ridiculous moments. The first thing I did with a kid was, um, you know, all the picture books and, and some of them are absolutely goddamn wonderful, um, like Julia Donaldson or Emily Gravitz. Book Dash, of course, does an amazing range of books. But a lot of, you know, you go through a lot of picture books uh, just so you wouldn't get bored out of your mind. And so many of them describe the princesses as beautiful. And every time I read it, I would, cha I would change it to say, the princess was funny and clever and um, a great soccer player. Um, and I would take that out. And, but I knew that when she started to read herself, we were going to, that I wouldn't be able to control that anymore. And I wouldn't be able to like stop her, like seeing that for a lot of society, a woman's worth is valued by her prettiness. And of course she got into pink and like Barbies in a big way. And that's absolutely fine. You know, I played with Barbies and pink can be an absolutely great color. I think we've done it a disservice. Um, but she also, from the, t even when she was like little, when she was three, she hated being called cute or beautiful. Like if my, if her grandparents tried to compliment her and say that she, she would just shut it down immediately. I think even before I started reading, um, the stories in that way, kind of slightly shifted language to her. So she's six years old and she, it's the 2nd of January. So we haven't done laundry. And she says to me, mama, I've decided I don't want to wear dresses anymore. And I, and I say, that's fine. That's absolutely your choice. You must wear whatever makes you happy. But it's the 2nd of January and we haven't done laundry. So today you're going to have to wear a dress. And we go to our cupboard and we're going through it. And um, and I say, you know, I don't know what your problem is with dresses because they are so comfortable and so easy. It's one item of clothing that you just pull over your head. It's one of the best things about being a girl. And she folded her arms and she said, Mama, did you hear what you just said? I, and I was frantically like backtracing. I was like, oh God, oh God, what did I say? And I was, I said, I said it was one of the best things, one, one, one of the best things of being a girl. And this just, in, you know, made her fury intensify. And she said, are you saying boys can't wear dresses? And I had to concede. I was definitely schooled. Um, and actually when we picked our, when I was in, uh, showing her photographs of our new housemates, Richard, a few years later, um, 
one of the photos I was showing her was a picture of him wearing a dress. And she was like, okay, yeah, he can come. That's fine. He can stay. Um, but lots of little instances like that where we'd be reading a comic together and um, it's God Shaper by Cy Spuria and uh, Jonas Goonface. And it's beautiful and really cool. And there's a bisexual character. There's a little bit of sex, but it happens off, off page. Um, and obviously she was a bit older than, I think, seven or eight. And at one point I said, oh, isn't it cool that the artist drew uh, the hero wearing girl's makeup? And again, she got really mad with me and she was like, what even is girl's makeup? And it's been such a thrill to see her become, you know, identify as queer, to be like so proactive. Again, this is the South African in her. She really has like such a keen sense of social justice, of racism, of homophobia, of sexism. Um, and, and I love that she's had that because she's fierce. And I also know that the compassion is going to hurt her. That combination of fierceness and compassion is really going to hurt her later on in her life. And being queer is still difficult, even in a city like London, um, with a cruel and callous government, which feels a lot like the cruel and callous government I left behind. Um, but yeah, it, it's when we watch movies together, she sometimes cries uh, when, it, when a major, major character dies. So we're watching Black Panther, and spoiler, but hopefully everyone's seen it by now, um, Killmonger dies. And she was sobbing, sobbing in the theater. But I would cry when we'd be watching a show and there would be gay characters or people were just being kind to each other. Or, and because when I grew up, we didn't have that. We just didn't have that level of kind of compassion and the level of acceptance of queer characters. It was, it was literally impossible. You would never see it on screen. And I'm so glad that her generation has that. Unfortunately, I know that that also means that there is a giant cultural pushback against that. And that's devastating. Um, and I hope we can get through that um, and continue to make progress. But we'll see. It's amazing to have like different touch points. To, I mean, that make you cry is a really good reference point because I'm also a big, big crier at emotional moments. Um, but it is amazing like what's just taken for granted in one generation that, that is revolutionary for another. And it's a really amazing um, those different contrasts that you highlight there. I wonder um, what part of parenting brings you the most joy and which part you find the most difficult? Um, obviously, we're into the teenage stubbornness phase, um, and that's quite frustrating, although I am quite stubborn and hard-headed, so, you know, it's, it's kind of my own fault. Um, but, uh, you know, the joy is just... <sighs> like little moments, like swimming at Silvermine Dam in Cape Town. And I just remember like, you know, the light shining off the water and she'd been so resistant. She, she said, oh, I hate Silvermine. I don't want to go. Um, why are we going? There are all those rocks there. And, you know, she eventually got in and she was just grinning. And I waited until she was like so happy to say, so do you still hate Silvermine? Um, and of course, you know, she had to confess in that moment that she didn't. So being able to travel with her, I, we had the most amazing time recently at a Spanish festival called Celsius 232, which of course is Fahrenheit. What, what is what is the, what the book Fahrenheit 451? 451, yeah. Yep. So Celsius 232 is a direct translation of Fahrenheit 451. And it's a science fiction festival. And actually one of her favorite creators in the world was there, um, uh, Indy Stevenson, who made our favorite comic in the world, Nimona, but also uh, the new Shira reboot, which is so queer and so wonderful. And it was one of the things that Gita and I mainlined through um, the pandemic together. And she had the best time and just got to hang out with Indy and this bunch of like really cool, sweet and lovely horror writers for like three days, just holding herself in conversations. Um, and it's, it's so great to share those moments with her and to kind of geek out. Um, and yeah, and like watching really good TV shows together, but also just kind of puttering around. She's really gotten to climbing in, in London, which I'm bouldering, which I'm really trying to get into. And I really hate it because I'm just scared and incompetent, but I'm trying for her sake. But the flip side is that she's supposed to come cycling with me and she manages to weasel out of that a lot. Um, so I guess it's kind of negotiating new boundaries. I find the most difficult part of parenting being the very boundary parent, you know, I'm bad cop um, in, in our divorce. And I find that really tough, but I also know that means I'm the parent who's gonna be able to hold her. So 
that she can resist me and that she will fight back against me because I can take it. And I think that's going to be really tough in a year or two or three. Um, and I'm not looking forward to being a punching bag, but I also know that I have the resilience to be able to hold it. It's difficult when you think, you know, you really want to raise strong-willed, brave children who speak their mind and then knowing that you're going to be on the receiving end of all of that strong-willedness that you've created or helped to build. No, I always wanted a smart, compassionate, fierce, funny kid and I got it and I was like, oh, shit. I did not realize how hard this was going to be to parent. Yeah, totally. Um, but you, you were speaking earlier about how this parenting, how that journalist asked, you know, how's your writing going to change? And I do think half the time that is a really sexist question. But I mean, it does definitely shape what you're interested in. And Afterland, your latest novel, focuses on a mother doing everything she can to protect her child against some very strange circumstances and people. Tell me a bit more about the idea for this novel and what your favorite parts of the story were. I'm sure lots of people have their own favorite parts because there's so many cool elements. I love the nuns, for example. But what was your favorite part? Um, you know, I really enjoyed writing Billy, the absolute narcissist evil sister. Um, she was just she was just hella fun. Um, and I think it's also it's really cathartic to be able to like let yourself go. Um, and unlike Harper, the serial killer in The Shiny Girls, where I hated writing him so much that I would just fuck him up at every opportunity. And it was really funny because when Kitu, Kitu hasn't read the book yet, uh, my daughter, but she has uh, watched a TV show, which I would not recommend for a normal 13-year-old audience. And she did fan art of Harper getting fucked up at every opportunity. And it was just such a beautiful bonding opportunity uh, to have this moment that we both hated this character so much we had to destroy him. Um but yeah, Billy was just like super fun. Um, the nun scene was great. I really enjoyed it. So Afterland came about because, you know, my friend Sarah Lotz is a writer and she's like, you know what you should do is a world without men um, because it's been done a couple of times before, but it hasn't been done right. Or it hasn't been done, you know, in a way that kind of reflects our reality. No, you know, no, um, no insult to any of the previous world without men writers. And actually there was a slew of them in the last couple of years. Um, and of course, it's a really tantalizing idea, right? That, you know, we wouldn't have to worry about rape and murder, that we would be able to go out in the streets and we'd be able to have, I don't know, communal vegetable gardens and go partying and, um, you know, just, just live our lives in a much more free way because we weren't under constant threat from men. But I actually really quite like men. Um, um, there are a lot of good ones there as well. and And I also radically... Uh, I believe that men are fully human and we expect them to act like it. Um, but I also believe that women are fully human and that there are many evil, violent, greedy, awful women in the world as well. Um, you know, look at the UK's current prime minister, Liz Truss. And it's just, I, I wanted to write a world which wasn't like magically good overnight that it did reflect our world. So it was a pandemic, which comes like two or three years after uh, kind of present day. Um, and it, it kills off all the men. And the society is not magically better, that there are still gangsters and there are still traffickers and there are still drug runners and there are still greedy political assholes and corporate bosses who don't give a damn about the environment and it doesn't magically change things because the patriarchy is a very comfortable pair of shoes to slip into um so i won't kind of play with that idea but it's much more kind of it's not you know this grand polemic about or an essay about like you know what women and men are like or what the world is like or what how it would change it's the, the, that is kind of the background it's the setting for the story which is about this mother-son relationship and he's one of the rare survivors um and she's trying to get him to a place of safety and her sister has designs on him not in a sexual way um but because he's a very valuable asset and she's trying to convince her sister that they could make some money off him and then um be able to afford whatever kind of life they liked and he's a teenage boy and he's masturbating anyway, so why does it matter if they sell some of his sperm to the highest bidder? Um, which, of course, is very creepy and horrible in itself. 
So, yeah, so that's kind of where the idea came from. And it's this kind of epic road race across America. And I wanted to dip in and out of kind of different communities, like, you know, these nuns who believe that it was woman's sin. They're very radical. They wear like, you know, robes printed with the word sorry. Um, and they kind of hold public uh, um, apologies where they'll grab your hand and like drag you into like praying to God and like crying and weeping and and saying sorry for woman's sin and sorry we talked so much and sorry we didn't obey our husbands. Please give us our men back. And then there's also, you know, the anarchist community where they're trying to figure out how to turn hotel rooms into living accommodation and, um, you know, doing all kinds of radical interesting things about kind of how do we reinvent democracy now we've had this great grand chance. Uh, to a sex work club where they have um, trans men and um, drag kings and non-binary people um, to cater to women's desires and needs. So it was it was really fun to kind of explore and touch on all those little ideas. Yeah, there's so many little, like you said, it's like across America, but it's also into dipping in and out of these weird and wild and amazing communities. And um, so it was really a fun read for the for the reader. Well done with it. And but your Thank new you. novel, Bridge, is coming out next year, which is another sort of parallel, infinite parallel universes story where there's a version of you who already has everything you've ever wanted. You've written um, sort of time travel before, time bending novels before. What is the appeal of multiverses and time travel and why is it so much fun to write? Um, it's not fun to write. It's really hard to keep track of everything. <laughs> it's a nightmare. I would not recommend it. Um, I, but I don't know if I would recommend writing in general. I find it very lonely and difficult. Um, I like having written. Um, yeah, so a surprise, it's another mother and daughter story. Um, it's actually, you know, the mom dies of breast cancer and her daughter's at her deathbed, but her mom's kind of ranting and, and making no sense and saying, you're not my daughter. And she realizes that this thing that her mom did with her when she was a little kid, which was supposed to be you know, open, open other realities and open other worlds might've been true all along. And she's going through her house and she finds this artifact. Um, and the question is, is her mom actually alive out there somewhere and can she find her? Um, so, you know, it's kind of a, a reverse Persephone story, I guess. But the, the fun of alternate realities, of course, is, you know, I think there's so much choice in the world and there's so many paths not taken and you always question them and wonder about, you know, what if I, what if I had never moved to England? What if I'd never decided I wanted to be a writer and found out that you get paid to make up stories? Um, and I wanted to play in kind of a very similar reality. So it's not Rick and Morty. It's not everything everywhere all at once, which is the perfect, perfect multiverse story. And we should all just stop writing stories in general and just go home because it's a perfect movie. It's a perfect story. And it does mother daughter multiverse like much better than I did. Um, and I'm sick with jealousy, but I'm also completely in love with that film. Um, but yeah, so the appeal is kind of like these unexplored alternate versions of yourselves, these mistakes that you've made or didn't make, um, and how you could have done better and, um, how these choices have shifted in small ways um, and, and also some big ones, but certainly no, you know, space robots or face eating spiders or anything like that. Um, but it was so, it was so fun and interesting because this conference I spoke at this weekend in Brighton, uh, we ended up crashing a neuroscientist party afterwards and it was all neuroscientists and musicians and they were all talking about resonant in instruments and trying to induce altered states and using, you know, music as a way to tap into different aspects of consciousness or to monitor the rainforest uh, using soundscapes. It was completely wild. It was completely my novel because, you know, they use music and resonant instruments to access other worlds. Um, and it just felt like such a weird coincidence that you couldn't even put it into a book. Um, and it's also great because now I have extra resources to go and like, I can go and spend more time interviewing neuro neuroscientists and finding out more details. Although my editor is going to freak because the final edits are due um, at the end of the month. And I don't really have time to add in whole chapters about neuroscience and music and consciousness, but we'll see. I'll try. So tempting though. <laughs> I know. I'm just, I'm just like, I want more information. Um, I visited a friend and her, a, a neuroparasitologist in her lab in Cape Town. And I just basically lifted my entire adventure out and put it in verbatim. And it's probably too long, but there's so much cool science stuff in there. Some readers are going to skip it. 
there's some readers who are going to geek out as hard as I did. You know, I think I'll be one of those. I find that, that type of stuff fascinating. And so, in fact, you could just go down and down and down the rabbit hole of amazing, killer things. Um, so I look forward to reading your additional chapters. Um, in addition to winning a, a raft of prestigious awards and having all your books translated and just, you know, like doing incredibly well as a writer, which I hope you remind yourself of every day. Um, you've also done a huge amount of work to raise money for important non-governmental organizations here in South Africa, Rape Crisis, Cape Town Trust being one and Book Dash being another. Can you tell us a little bit more about why these organizations matter to you? Sure. So I think it's it's two there's two factors at play here. The one is that I um, I've been incredibly lucky and also talented and worked my butt off um, to get to where I am. But a lot of that has been luck. Um, and you know, I could have yeah. You know, I was kind of like the first major name in South African science fiction apart from Neil Blomkamp. Um, but I I have a stage and I have an ability to use it. And, you know, I think the thing about the spotlight is you could just hog it. You could just stand in the spotlight and tap dance. Um, Or you could kind of hang a disco ball up there and have have that light kind of reflect onto other people. So I've always tried to be very proactive in highlighting other African authors and South African authors in particular um, and, and try to try to use, you know, the spotlight for good. And with Moxieland, the original cover was done by my friend Dale Halverson, and he made he had this special Moxie monster made for the cover. Um, and I loved it so much. I was like, if I love this so much, other people will love this. So I thought we'd do merch. So we made um, some Moxie toys. My friend Sarah Lotz um, approached a group of women um, uh, in you know a local impoverished area. I can't remember the name. It might have been Masipumalele. Um, and she at Rotary bought them some sewing machines and they made like a hundred Moxie monsters. And we sold them for, I think, 150 Rand each and hundred Rand went to the woman. Um, and, you know, so it wasn't a lot of money, but it was just a fun thing to do, which then also raised some money and for a charity. And now these women had sewing machines and could go off and do their own thing. So I decided this would be a great thing to do for every book. And um, with Zoo City, we auctioned off um, vinyl toy bears made by the MI Collective. And we got five, six different artists to do individual interpretations of the book and they could do whatever they wanted. Um, and then we auctioned those off. Uh, and that money went to a refugee children's home um, because refugees are a big part of Zoo City. With The Shiny Girls, it's a book about violence against women and what trauma does to us and the way we speak about violence against women, which is, uh, you know, and there was there's still a long trend of representing serial killers in novel as, novels as fascinating and diabolical and just absolutely so interesting and traumatized and disturbed and brilliant. But real serial killers are small and pathetic and co- contemptible little men. Um, and I think Jamie Bell did such a good version of that in his, the way he played Harper on screen. He was perfect. You know, it's a thwarted, angry little piece of shit. Um, and obviously, you know, we don't really have to worry about time traveling serial killers and, you know, serial killers are quite rare as well. Um, but what we really have to worry about is domestic violence and and rape. So for me, it was really important, although the book doesn't include any rape, to support an, an organization I know does amazing work with rape victims in a country where we have one of the highest gender-based violence rates in the world. So we did a charity art show. My friend Jackie Lang was a curator and we ripped pages out of the book and artists again could do whatever they wanted. They could put their coffee cup down on the page and then sign their name. Um, But people did the most incredible art. Um, It also from Olive Green Cat, like gold plated her page and hung it with skulls. Um, And, you know, we had Zapiro doing his original rape cartoon and um, just absolutely phenomenal artists um, I'm forgetting all the names now, unfortunately. Um, but we had a really great cross section of up and coming names and like some big names as well who gave their time. And we raised a hundred thousand rand for rape crisis. We had a queue down, you know, three flights of stairs for like an hour before we opened the doors and the whole show sold out in like 20 minutes. It was amazing. Um, so we decided to do it again for broken monsters where and broken monsters is about kind of storytelling. Um, 
and the way stories shape who we are and the doors they open in our heads um, and how you can, the stories you tell yourself can shape you for good or evil. Um, and it's also very much set in the art world. So it seemed appropriate to do another art show. So we did the same thing, but this time we got Nando's to sponsor us and we managed to raise 350,000 Rand for Book Dash, which is an organization that's very close to my heart. I've written a book for them, but they believe that the only way to save reading and education in South Africa is to tackle it at the primary level. And they wouldn't actually use those words. Their dream is that every child by the age of five should have a hundred books of their own. But to have kids engage with storytelling, to get them hooked um, on kind of imagination and being able to imagine outside of themselves, um, to have, be able to have adventures in their head is such a cool and amazing thing. And I think it just opens it opens you to the world in a very meaningful and important way. So it was great to be able to do that. And I think, I can't remember how many books that meant we were able to print, but we were able to print a ton of books and distribute them um, throughout South Africa. And it was just, it was so lovely to be able to kind of give back in that kind of way. And of course, you know, it was my idea, but the real people doing this, the artists contributing their time, um, you know, the creator putting everything together and, so in many ways, I was just kind of the catalyst there. But but it was a really cool thing to do. Yeah, and your book is And Also, if I remember right. It's a really cool one of the stories. And all of the Book Dash books are available for download, free download online. You can download just the imagery or just the text and play around and make your own books. So if people listening haven't heard of Book Dash, I highly recommend going to check it out. It's an incredible organization as well. Um, as my last question about your books, I hope you don't mind if we go back to really one of your earlier books, Maverick, which is a collection about women who didn't live by the rules. You updated it in 2015 with Naham Brody. Can you tell us a bit about why you wanted to put this collection together and if there is anyone you'd add to it now after all these years have passed? Um, it was a very sexy reason why I wanted to put it together. I was commissioned and I wasn't even the first choice. Um, <laughs> so there was a publisher, a really cool publisher in Cape Town, and she started a woman's imprint and she approached me after her first choice said no. Um, and yeah, so, but she gave me free, free reign to put together a list of whoever I wanted. And I really wanted it to not just be kind of a boring history book. I wanted to be able to kind of have really interesting people. So the book does include incredible activists like, um, Lenny Ngoy and Helen Joseph, um, artists like, um, or writers like Bessie Head, musicians like Brenda Fassi, um, Olive Schreiner, obviously, who was kind of like one of the very early feminists um, and, and quite radical and amazing. But I also wanted to include um, outliers. So there is Daisy DeMelka, who is South Africa's famous serial killer from the 1930s. Um, and stories that hadn't we, we hadn't seen a lot of being told, like Kratoa Iefa, who I'd never heard of by that point, um, who was one of the first translators between the Dutch and her people. Um, I think it was the, oh, I'm going to mangle the name. I'm not going to try and remember who it was. It was, I did write the book a long time ago in 2005. So please forgive me. Um, but yeah, but, but the kind of things that she went through, um, and I just wanted to, and Dolly Rotebe, who was like the first black, first African black movie star. Um, but she was also, you know, she ran her own Shabin and she was also this incredible jazz singer um, who sang for Nelson Mandela when he was released. And just these amazing women who had like really tough and difficult lives. Uh, Ruth First, who was, you know, a, a Jewish uh, uh, revolutionary who was part of the Communist Party in South Africa, um, who was killed by a letter bomb. Um, by the apartheid government because that's how much they feared her voice and yeah so it was just really it was really fun to write and of course it definitely set the ground for the shining girls because i'd written these kind of micro biographies of just incredible women who dealt with really tough things and still you know had the foresight to kind of and and, and pure stubbornness um to be able to kind of carry on despite everything which happened to them i'm not recommending that for serial killers I'm, i think that's much better for activists <laughs> <laughs> no recommendations for serial killers on this podcast please <laughs> um it's really it's a very very cool book and i did love that you included the unusual suspects as well just you know to give as you say when you were talking about billy earlier like the full spectrum of of womanhood that we're not all nice sweet cookies that are going to be like the best 
at at being whatever people expect of women we are diverse and can, can be very nasty and manipulative and crazy as oh, well yeah. so i love that um i have um, I think, so, sorry for the updates so for the updates um we also we we added some new names um but we also nahama and i decided that we were so dr james barry was um a famous doctor uh, i think in the 1800s again you're really taxing my brain on a book i haven't looked at in years um who was revealed on his death to be a woman so in the original edition of the book i called him her but i think what's been amazing is how the world changes and and we decided that we didn't actually know how dr james barry would have thought of himself or herself back in the day and we decided to use he pronouns so even though it's a book about women and you know we included i guess what would we have called, would have called a trans man now we also don't know his full motivations was he dressing as a man or was she dressing as a man just because they wanted to fit in and be able to be a practicing medical doctor um or did he actually identify as a man we don't know so we we decided to err on the favor of like using he he him pronouns because that's how he used he lived his life that's amazing it's um also i suppose you think like of a book in print being sort of set in stone but it's amazing in a reprint to be able to make those changes and to be more sort of culturally appropriate or you know in line with the times and the way that we now think about things which i think will you know it's difficult being a writer writing any form of writing especially about feminism or about feminist characters and thinking oh my god like the ways i'm fucking up now i have absolutely no idea and i'm only going to learn in like 10 years when people are much smarter and illuminate the new ways that the new nuances that we need to be thinking about and so it's cool to be able to go back and make those changes and make things right again and to admit where you'd made mistakes or were, were not necessarily sure of yourself i think that's really cool Yeah, I think I think it's amazing that the culture shifts that we have new understanding. If I look at, you know, I was talking about Shira earlier, which is one of my kids' favorite shows and mine. Um, but if I look back the old Shira, which I grew up with versus the one she has, it's just you know, it's we've learned so much, we've come so far. Our understanding of social justice of gender has, you know, even since I read Afterland, like, you know, like things have changed. Um and and I love that. And I also try to do you know i try to do better i try to fix things where i can i'm not afraid to admit when i was wrong it still hurts obviously but um but yeah i think it's really important to actually be able to rethink things and be able to go back and like see how you can make things better totally lauren we've come to the end of our podcast i have three questions that i ask every writer or every guest at the end of the show the first is do you have a book that has inspired your feminism The Ballad of Halo Jones by Alan Moore and Ian Gibson. Um it was a comic book but it was part of 2000 AD. It came out for oh, I don't even know. Uh, I guess late 80s. And it was just the most incredible story of this yeah because so much of science fiction was male based. Um you had male action heroes and all the cartoons were men and we'd have Smurfette syndrome where there'd be one girl and her personality was girl. Um and Halo Jones like kind of came out of poverty and she ended up going to go work on a luxury cruise ship and then found herself in the middle of a war and it was just it was just incredible like it was just such an amazing story she was such a great character she was so stubborn and she was determined to get out she knew that what she had around her wasn't enough um and yeah she and I I was very lucky in that I got to write the I think 20th anniversary edition intro um recently and that was that was really great um because that character meant a lot to me that's amazing and do you have a quote or words of wisdom that you live by you know, I always used to say don't be an ass hat um which i think is probably quite dated language to early 2000s but uh but that probably still holds true i think just you know be accountable <laughs> i love that <laughs> And finally, do you have any advice for other feminists or other parents on their journeys through this weird world? I think unfortunately the feminism's great work is working on helping men, which sucks. Um but I think the way men and boys are still being raised and socialized, um first of all they're, you know, being raised they're coming into quite a quite a 
a world where men are told that they're crap and garbage and, you know, the bad guys. And unfortunately, a lot of that is true. You know, if you look at who violence is done by, it's men, mostly to men. But violence against women is mostly done by men. Um, so they're doing like more than their fair share of the violence here. Um, and that's not to say that men can't be the victims of domestic abuse or violence or anything else, or that we don't need to support like male rape victims. Um, but I think we need to help boys realize that fem feminism is not specifically antagonistic to them. And I think it's about kind of embracing, embracing people as full, full people to see women as full people. And unfortunately, building up resistance against people like Andrew Tate, who's that awful, awful influencer who, you know, has talked about how he beats women and, you know, and his kind of ideas that women are lesser people. And it's hard because there's so much of that content out there. And so it becomes this constant fight specifically around boys. I think, I think girls are in a pretty good place. I think we know our worth. The problem is we need to bring the rest of the world and men and boys in particular up to speed with that in a way that doesn't, immediately put them on the defensive and radicalize them. And I don't actually know how you manage that because also it's such a nuanced thing and all the weight is on us to do it. So please raise your boys to be better in, yeah. in, in nuanced ways, you know, more compassion allow them to have feelings, allow them to be sad, allow them to, you know, be broken as well. Yeah. I'm raising who for now is a little boy. And uh, that is something that I think about a lot is that feminism is a movement for gender equality and gender equity. It's not a movement for like <laughs> a post post apocalyptic world where women are the evil <laughs> superpowers, you know, it's really about yeah. a, more, a more equal situation for everybody. And I do think a lot of that work means changing the way that we raise boys and talk to men and try to engage with them. And it's tricky because a one-by-one -one approach seems to be the most strategic way, but then you get someone like Andrew Tate <laughs> where a one-by-one -one approach is just a waste of your time and it feels easier to give up and move on sometimes. And part of that is writing different worlds. So thank you for the work that you do in, in writing different worlds and supporting important NGOs here in South Africa. And I really look forward to your next book coming out. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Jen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. so much for tuning into this week's episode of living while feminist with me jen thorpe please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences take care of yourselves <laughs>